Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. This podcast is the first in a mini-series co-hosted with Susie Allegre, International Human Rights Barrister and Associate at Downty Street Chambers, and she is also a research fellow at the University of Roehampton. This podcast is about the overlooked aspects of freedom of expression in the online space, um, the rights of the receiver, the rights to form and hold opinions and the right to receive information. And we're really grateful to the Office of the OSCE representative on freedom of the media for a grant through their Spotlight on AI and Freedom of Expression project to support the series. And our guest for this podcast is Maitali Jane, who's an international human rights lawyer and legal director at Avaz, an international campaigning organization that does groundbreaking work on disinformation and misinformation around the world. And if you want to support this podcast and make it sustainable, then please go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com and chip in a couple of pounds a month. The Better Human Podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate program taught in London. If you're interested in studying human rights at university, you can apply to Goldsmiths LLB Law with Criminal Justice and Human Rights and LLB Law with Politics and Human Rights. To learn more, please visit gold.act.uk forward slash law. So we're going to talk about misinformation and disinformation. Um, there's a, a difference between them. And th- my first question was that in the context of this pandemic that we're all going through as we speak, um, international organisations like the WHO and UNICEF and other UN bodies um, have raised the alarm of, about something called an infodemic um, of misinformation and disinformation. Is there a clear definition, uh, as far as you're aware, of misinformation and or disinformation? What are we talking about? So there have been different uh, definitions. The one that we've relied on most consistently is the one that has was promulgated a couple of years ago in the EU Code of Practice on disinformation. And I'm going to read it out. It, it's defined as verifiably false or misleading information which cumulatively A, is created, presented, and disseminated for economic gain or to intentionally deceive the public, and B, may cause public harm. Um, And public harm is defined in different ways. Now, for our research, uh, we engage in a lot of investigatory research We've modified that definition um, in different ways, most notably really uh, trying to uh, be more flexible with the kind of intent um, element because, uh, I mean, I I think if you ask the kind of main distinction between disinformation and misinformation, it's it's about um, kind of the intent of the dis or misinformer and um, often that's incredibly difficult to prove. Um, so we, we've focused more on the verifiably false or misleading and then also the potential to cause harm. If, if something isn't deliberately false and misleading, then it wouldn't fulfill that definition of disinformation. Um, I'm just wondering about, you know, there seems to be with, with COVID a lot of people who believe um, that things that are not true are true so for example that bill gates is trying to 
injectors with microtransmitters through the vaccines is you know the, a, 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 a typical example so is is what they're doing not disinformation or is, is it just, is it misinformation is it something different yeah, so I would say that what they're doing is misinformation. You're right. I, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking from the U.S. and I'm surrounded, <laughs> even in Northern California, with people who believe many of the falsehoods that we've investigated online. Um, I'm surprised. And in fact, we ran a poll uh, here in the U.S. to look at uh, the kind of content that people are seeing on Facebook and then also believing. And it was really astounding. I mean, of course, it's difficult to trace causation because people are hearing these falsehoods in different fora. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, looking at some of the stats from the poll, uh, some of the falsehoods that have been promulgated and that have been believed are things that are not as, um, you know, Kind of discussed in the public narrative so it's more likely that it's something that's been found on social media um you know uh, specific uh claims about uh voter fraud about how um the voting machines uh, the companies that they're affiliated with um, are somehow connected to the democratic party um you know very very kind of specific things um that that people do believe um and it's it's quite Quite interesting. So yeah, I, I think where people actually believe the falsehood that they're spreading, that's where the intent element would be lacking and it would kind of fall into what we call misinformation. Yeah. So we've tried to make that distinction where we can. Um, sometimes just for ease of uh, reference, we talk about it cumulatively as disinformation, um, but it's really encompassing both under different circumstances. I mean, it's something that I found amazing at the sort of beginning of the pandemic was how quickly I started receiving through WhatsApp groups because everybody sort of moved into WhatsApp. The first one was a mock-up of a government message saying that it was going to be illegal to leave your house tomorrow morning, um, which didn't look quite right to me. So I sort of went back and checked it and then replied to the WhatsApp group saying, you may want to think about um, misinformation or disinformation, but even things like uh, messages saying that we were all to encourage our children to send pictures of rainbows to the new Nightingale hospitals, which again was just it was misinformation but you know it sounds like a nice thing spreads on on social media you know without anybody really checking it because it seems like a great idea but of course you know potentially submerges the nhs under a pile of pictures of rainbows and it was it was completely made up um but I, and i think what i found really interesting and as well working with you as well in 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 and around these problems of misinformation and disinformation is the complexity of the networks, not only online, but offline. And when you read about misinformation and disinformation networks spanning borders, you know, involving NGOs and the way that they can, uh, NGOs and others and academics and the way that misinformation can be used very subtly to change narratives or to sort of gain uh, credibility. And I'd just be really interested in hearing your experience from Avaz about the kind of scale and complexity of the, the operations that you've come across in the kind of disinformation and misinformation spheres. Yeah, and, and so, you know, again, when we're talking about disinformation, um, often we have these very um, highly sophisticated networks um, that are coordinating their behavior, um, you know, for profit. And, you know, 
you know, in kind of the investigatory parlance, you know, we talk about those as being kind of the gold standard. If you can identify those networks, um, then it's a clear violation of, you know, platform policies, because what you have then is what's called coordinated and inauthentic behavior or CIB uh, for short. Now, getting to that standard is often very difficult. Um, we have, you know, we have encountered a fair amount of that. We first encountered that in the context of the EU elections last year, uh, where we found some CIB activity taking place in the context of just mis misinforming voters about uh, the EU elections. We've also found it in the realm of, uh, of, of public health, uh, kind of dis and misinformation. Um, but again, because that's a clear violation uh, of platform policies, once that's identified, um, that will come down. I think what has been trickier is this kind of uh, this other space of uh, incredibly highly socially networked uh, kind of pages and groups that often are affiliated politically, but aren't necessarily engaging in kind of robust, coordinated, or inauthentic behavior. So it's not a clear violation of platform policies, but it is this kind of um, massive ecosystem of influence um, and really kind of highly uh, designed efforts to influence the public narrative. So in the context of the US election, in the run-up to the election, one of the networks that we were able to pull, get pulled down was a network affiliated to Steve Bannon. Um, and it was about, uh, I think it was about 42 pages with two and a half million followers, which, you know, again, it may not seem like a lot, but again, in the context of being able to um, really tackle some of the most harmful narratives that are emerging and influencing people literally as they go out to vote, um, it was quite a, quite a big deal. Um, and frankly, right now, in the context, I, I think a lot of people have kind of uh, have uh, relaxed a bit and felt, well, okay, the U.S. election is is done and dusted. Let's move on. But what we're seeing is that, in fact, in this runoff election that's happening in Georgia um, for the two Senate seats on the 5th of January, there's a ton of misinformation, at the very least, that we're seeing. And we are seeing the same... Um, personalities, the same influencers who are repeat misinforming. And so that's kind of been an area of, of incredible focus for us, which is to really talk about the repeat misinformers and what these platforms should be doing with them. So, um, so yeah, it's difficult to, for us as an NGO to really understand the scale and the scope of these networks. Um, but I'd say probably the most uh, the biggest network we identified in the context of the U.S. elections was this Steve Bannon network. Um, previously, in a massive report that we issued on uh, health misinformation, we found uh, a pretty incredible network of misinformers ranging from uh, folks who are kind of in the anti-vax space to magic cures, um, and so forth. I don't have the numbers with me, but um, that was another interesting network that then reappears, it resurfaces at times like the US election, where a lot of those influencers are activated to share the kind of content that has to do with voter fraud and so forth. Can you, so, so the, 
those profit making sort of I don't know disinformation factories. Um, I suppose that the, 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 the in the popular imagination, it's the um, it's the bunker in Eastern Europe with um, with a hundred um, you know guys on on laptops making making memes. But what does it look like? I mean, where where, where is this? Is there a is there so just to take for example coronavirus um, and the misinformation around that? You know, we, there's a, there's there's a whole I suppose there's a range from the the issues that people get very um, animated about that are maybe a bit maybe debatable and in, in the, there's some scientists out there who don't say masks work or you know but the vast majority say they do you know those kind of issues and then there's the you know use um, you know inject bleach into your bloodstream or um, Bill Gates is trying to take over your um, your brain through vaccines but are there central actors working to create that stuff for profit or is it is it coming you know is it building organically because people you know are, are attracted to conspiracy theories i think it's both i mean i, I that may not be a, a very um a settling answer but i i do think it's both i mean there, there are those people who um uh are prone to kind of disbelieving the establishment, if you will, and so uh, latch on to various kinds of um, uh, counter-establishment narratives or conspiracy theories. Um, and so you'll see you know, people organically sharing those who tend to be skeptical of, uh, of the establishment. Um, but because again, we're seeing, we're seeing a move away from posting, um, uh, right-wing influencers, for example, from posting content to really developing these highly networked kind of ecosystems of influencers. Um, and so there, there is a suggestion that there's a kind of um, centralized narrative creation mechanism that then gets disseminated amongst these networks. Now, it may not be happening in a way that would be identified as CIB, uh, coordinated and inauthentic behavior has to occur in a certain way. You know, posts have to occur within a certain time period of one another, and they have to happen in a certain way. It may not happen in that way. You take a post, um, a post that has a claim, for example, that, um, you know, dead people have voted in Michigan. Um, and you see that, you know, being promulgated uh, on, on a set of pages. And then there's a kind of manipulation maybe of the image and the text so that it's the, effectively the same post, but now it's been tinkered with a little bit, but it's the same message appearing differently. And we find that a lot, that there's uh, maybe four central posts that, uh, four central claims rather, that kind of spawn um, dozens and dozens if not more uh, posts that contain the same message, but that are varied enough to, to evade detection, particularly AI detection, um, so that you do have uh, effectively the same claims being shared by a network of, uh, of influencers on social media, people with incredibly high followings. Um, so, so again, I, I do think it's a, it's a combination of both those who are prone to kind of believing conspiracy theories, but then a very deliberate attempt at influencing the public narrative around these issues. And are those people being paid? Do you have any? Do you have? Do you have evidence 
that those people have been paid. We don't have evidence per se. Well, in the in the election realm, I don't think that we've uncovered any evidence of people being paid. Uh, certainly, in the in the public health realm, one of the things that we uncovered, which is is it's, it's quite damning. I mean, once you find these pages and these posts, there's a kind of monetized. Uh, the, the pages themselves are monetized. There's products that are being sold on these pages, magic cures for COVID, for, um, uh, for other kinds of ailments. And so, you know, it, it's kind of like uh, uh, the proof is right there that, uh, you know, they may not be paid for creating the memes, but they are being kind of monetized in terms of uh, the misinformation that they're spreading. Um, so we, when, we, when we talk to Facebook about the policy reforms uh, that we're asking for, we talk about both downgrading serial misinformers, but also demonetizing um, where, where there's evidence of the fact that they have been monetized. Um, but yeah, we, we don't have, I don't think we've uncovered that kind of information about a group of uh, disinformers being, being paid to do that. That's very difficult information to come by, for sure. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable. And I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. I suppose, I mean, one question as well about that monetization model is, you know, how far is that monetization driven by AI um, and how far is it driven by the specific content? And what is the role of, of AI, I suppose, in driving misinformation and disinformation and, co- and or combating it? So we've, we've certainly seen that um, if I could talk about it kind of in a backwards approach, what we've seen is once we've identified, for example, the top 100 serial misinformers in the context of, uh, you know, the run-up to the U.S. election, and then shared that information with Facebook through spreadsheets, they then take action on some of those misinformers, and we're able then graphically to plot the reach that those misinformers have with their content. And it has been quite significant in some instances. So there is a suggestion that the algorithms, once once certain misinformers um, are downgraded uh, algorithmically, that their reach is curtailed drastically. Um, so ev- there's, you know, the evidence suggests kind of using that methodology that the algorithms certainly are boosting and amplifying these networks and this content. And also I should mention, you know, the the feature that exists on Facebook of the recommended groups, um, so that if you're in a group or a page that you see this kind of um, uh, notification of recommended groups. I mean, that's another way I think that AI is really boosting these networks um, so that, you know, you consider joining uh, groups that you may not have otherwise. And, and YouTube, um, Susie and I have spoken about YouTube before, but YouTube um, seems to be, certainly with younger people, um, a kind of you know, permanent fixture on how they receive information. And, and a, lot, a lot has been said about the way the algorithm works there. And, and do you, is, is YouTube still playing that important role in, in spreading, in taking people down rabbit holes and you know, the sort of 
taking them step by step into crazier and crazier levels of disinformation? Um, anecdotally, what I've heard is that, uh, in fact, YouTube uh, is kind of continuing to play that role. Uh, what I will say empirically, though, is that we did a report uh, early this year looking at YouTube and climate, climate denialism, uh, particularly looking at how a lot of videos that arguably fall within kind of the climate denialism category um, are monetized and often um, unknowingly by uh, uh, advertisers who really have no idea that they're, they're monetizing these videos. Um, so we, we certainly saw that happening in, in the context of that investigation, but we haven't since then really come back to focus on YouTube. I think that's something we'd like to do, uh, particularly, as you say, um, in the context of online radicalization. I mean, that, that's an area that we've started to really delve into, uh, looking at some of these um, these kind of right-wing militia organizations like Proud Boys and others that have really kind of uh, not come up because they've been around for a while, but really kind of become prominent uh, in the last few months. And where are they, um, where are they, those organizations online in, in your experience? Um, so it's interesting. I mean, what, what I've heard from my colleagues who are really doing a lot of the investigations is that um, because of particularly pre-election, Facebook's kind of reluctant, um, and I say reluctant very deliberately, uh, decision to kind of clamp down on some of this material um, that was really prompted by a lot of advocacy across civil society. Uh, because of that, um, a lot of these groups migrated away from Facebook um, and YouTube and other platforms um, and into Gab and Parler and these smaller platforms that apparently uh, don't have, you know, even half the, the kind of enforcement of uh, some of the more mainstream social media platforms. But then more recently, I've seen some news that um, they're finding that these platforms are not as, uh, they're not as inviting or welcoming a space to really do what they want to do. So they're kind of coming back to the mainstream social media platforms because it gives them more functionalities that they, uh, that they are used to. So it's interesting. I think it'll be interesting to see kind of what happens in the coming days also because now that the elections are over, you see Facebook, for example, uh, kind of easing um, some of its own uh, policies that it had kind of uh, adopted because it was under scrutiny in the run-up to the election. I mean, we've already seen, for example, that it's reversed its algorithmic, uh, it, the decision to kind of um, uh, amplify authoritative news sources during the election period. That decision has just recently been reversed. Um, so now we're back to hyper-partisan news sources, you know, kind of uh, having access full throttle to the algorithm in ways that we've seen before. And I think it's it's really interesting when you look at a lot of the discussions about how these views and opinions are are spread. You're kind of on the one hand, you're looking at the the real world impact. So 
with anti-vaxxers, for example, the kind of health impacts that that has in the real world. But then the other side of the debate is often about this freedom of expression and how you kind of define what is and isn't okay and how it's delivered. Um, and I think what's really interesting, when you look at the delivery methods, you know, and, and as Adam says, we've spoken before about, about YouTube, but I, I found it amazing, a piece of research by US researchers going to a flat earth conference where effectively every single person they spoke to there had come to believe that the earth was flat through being taken on a journey through YouTube. So it wasn't that they woke up one morning and decided the earth was flat and went to look for information about the flat earth, but rather they'd been brought to that opinion through their journey, through other things that they'd been looking for. And so I think that raises real questions about our freedom to form our own opinions based on reliable information and how we get our information. And I'd be really interested in your thoughts about how, you know, how that aspect of freedom of expression, the freedom to form opinions freely, to receive relevant and, and reliable information, how we can kind of protect that in the online space. Well, uh, Susie, you know that I'm a, I'm a huge fan of um, this kind of uh, frame, framing, I suppose, of the issues because, you know, one thing that's, that's incredibly frustrating about working in a, um, what's seen as a content moderating space um, is that the only right or value that's kind of discussed is freedom of speech. And, uh, you know, certainly kind of we're coming from, a, I'm coming from a context that's kind of a freedom of speech absolutist context where it's about, um, you know, by, by, taking, by taking my post down, you're, you're in, uh, infringing on my freedom to speak. By um, downgrading my page, you're infringing on my freedom to uh, to have reach, which is actually not even <laughs> a part of a part of the right. So, I, I think the if we were to kind of step back temporally and look at, you know, the the freedom to kind of even go into that uh, forum internum and to think about how we form formulate our thoughts, how we formulate our opinions how we receive information, digest and process information to arrive at those opinions, I think it would take us to a completely different space um, in terms of advocacy with the platforms. And um, as you know, that argument has been somewhat successful in the context of the EU and the regulations that they're considering now in terms of the DSA and uh, the EDAP. Um, I think we have a journey to go on in terms of really popularizing that framework, that conceptual framework uh, in places like the US and other places um, where we, we, we still need to get past the, the kind of chatter of freedom of speech to be able to look at it through a different lens. Um, but in terms of how to protect that right, I mean, I, I think um, the one you know thing that we've been spending a lot of time thinking about is what does it mean to actually detox the algorithm? That has been one of our kind of proposals, our policy proposals for how Facebook can do better. But what does it actually mean? Until now, it's meant, you know, downgrading serial misinformers, demonetizing um, serial misinformers. But I think it, we can go further. I mean, I think we, we really need to think about things um, like also third-party um, third accountability, 
we know that these platforms cannot regulate themselves. They've, they've time and time again shown that there's no incentive built into the business model of these structures to do that, uh, you know, meaningfully. So we need to have um, third-party regulators really engaging in um, uh, auditing, I think, a kind of an auditability of these algorithms and platforms to understand how they're working in the first instance, to have, um, you know, transparency of data with the APIs, you know, are really only publicly available for Twitter. We, we still don't have the APIs for the other platforms. So we need to kind of go further in terms of um, transparency and auditability. Um, and, you know, we also need to think about uh, how platforms can redesign their algorithms in a way that actually promotes values over metrics. Um, and uh, those are conversations I think that we have yet to have. Um, but I'm hopeful that with uh, stronger regulators uh, in place, we might be in a position to actually have those conversations if we can get past the, the kind of rhetoric, um, the lazy rhetoric, if you will, around content regulation and the kind of hyperpartisan views about that. Yeah. I think, um, although I could happily go on for another hour, I think we've taken up um, all of the time we have. Um, Mitali, thank you so much for coming on this podcast and um, talking about these issues. Um, and we'll obviously keep an eye on all this, all this is going on and also Avaz's work. How can people support Avaz? What's the best way? Um, so our website is just uh, uh, avaz.org. So it's A-V-A-A-Z.org. And if you go there, um, we have all of our uh, Dis misinformation uh, investigations and reports uh, located there. There's uh, petitions that people can take action on and uh, yeah, get in touch with us there. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Vitaly. So, thank you very much to my co host, Susie Allegre, to our guest, Mitali Jane. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening. The Better Human Podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. If you're interested in studying human rights at university, applications to Goldsmiths LLB Law with criminal justice and human rights and LLB Law with politics and human rights are now open. To learn more, visit gold.act.uk forward slash law. If you want to support the podcast, www.betterhumanpodcast.com. Chip in a few pounds a month, help to make it sustainable. Thanks very much. My name is Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human Podcast. Goodbye. <laughs>